If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Here's what Salt Lake's talking about. In 2012, Utah had the second highest rate of opioid overdose deaths in the nation. But according to some number crunching from the Deseret News, we are now 40th. From second to 40th. So how do we do it? What is there to learn here? And at the risk of being that guy, what new threats are brewing? It's Thursday, June 15th. I'm Ali Vallarta, and this is CityCast Salt State Senator Dr. Jen Plum and founder of Utah Naloxone, in the past 10 years, Utah has reversed the direction of its opioid overdose deaths. We used to be one of the worst states, highest rates. Now, while the rest of the country is seeing an increase, we are on a downward trend. How did that happen? You know, it's really something, isn't it? We had to really have an eye opening in that 2012 to 2014 period when we were fourth in the nation for overdose deaths. And Utah didn't see that coming. We didn't see ourselves that way. We still don't perhaps see ourselves that way. But it was, I think, really shocking to a lot of folks. And the good news from it is that it it led to a lot of people having an eye opening and it led to a lot of people having to kind of reevaluate where we are in this space. You know, past nearly decade on this, it's taken quite a few things. It's taken, first of all, awareness and education and eye-opening that, hey, Utah, this is us. You may not think this is us. Utah has its own vision of itself, right? There's a very, we're fine. Everything's fine. Everyone's good. The Utah way. Yeah, absolutely, right? Mm -hmm. And it took education of clinicians, what we call academic detailing about their prescribing patterns and also the education that they were giving their patients and the folks that they were treating. It took awareness on the public health side to be not just allowing a stigma view of what someone who's at risk of drug overdose looks like. It took access to the life-saving antidote naloxone, which is where, you know, my brother and I kind of entered the picture in that 2014 to 2015 space because these are preventable deaths. It took kind of a shift, I think, in our criminal justice system and our enforcement space and how they look at someone who's struggling with substances, that it's not just a, a punishable offense, it's a health problem and it's needing multidisciplinary kind of interventions to help someone. So yeah. I think for me, what it's really taken is, is culture shift. And that's what we've seen. We've seen Utah wake up and shift the way it views this space. Why is that culture shift so important? I think that the stigmatization that has gone along with folks who use drugs or folks who are at risk of, of overdose has been, you know, it's decades. We lost my brother to a heroin overdose in 1996. And when he passed and my dad actually wrote his obituary and talked about how he had fought valiantly and had struggled and his drug of choice was heroin. And, and there were members of our family, there were members of our neighborhoods, there were members of our community that were gobsmacked that we would mention that. How dare we bring that shame on the family? How dare we bring that shame into the neighborhood? And to us, it was very much like, 
no, this this is what got him. Why would we hide from that? You, you've seen folks that have cancer, right, or have other illnesses, and their families are surrounded by love and light and bringing of the, the dinners and the funeral potatoes and cleaning the house and cutting the yard and all this sort of stuff. And it hasn't been that way for folks whose wellness is compromised by substances, but it's starting to shift. And without that, people aren't as valued. They don't necessarily view their own health as something they should try to grasp onto and get better, and society doesn't pitch in to help them. So that kind of shift of the way we view folks who are struggling and who are at risk has been crucial. It's also been, it's a compassion shift. It's a, hey, we actually care about you. We want you here. I will miss you if you are gone. I will not be the same without you here. My family will not be the same without you here. Our neighborhood, our community will not be the same without you here. And, and I, that's one of the things I think I'm most proud of the state on is I've, I've really watched that happen over the last decade or so. Well, you're also a lawmaker. I'm curious how the cultural shift around overdose that's happening on the ground in the state has kind of worked its way up the hill. Are you seeing changes in how we're addressing this issue in a legal way? You know, I am, and I'm, I'm brand new to the actual elected space of being a policymaker, but I worked, you know, kind of as an outside advocate for, you know, the multiple years before that. Utah Naloxone came into existence because of a piece of legislation that was passed by Representative Carol Speckman Moss and then Senator Brian Chiazawa, who's also an ER doctor. And I really feel like that piece of policy kicked off that shift. I can tell you when I first started a decade or so ago, I would hear the word junkie all the time. I would hear mm-hmm. it in reference to people who use substances or in reference to people who have, have lost their lives. I would hear it not only in law enforcement spaces, but I would hear it from policymakers. I would hear it from even medical people. And I can tell you, I, I haven't heard that word used in a long while since I've heard that term used. There has been a humanization Um, There's also been, I think, a realization that this is not something folks have to hide. The number of of folks who are up there in the legislative space with me who have shared their families' struggles, folks that they've lost, folks that they're, you know, celebrating and championing their recoveries, it's everywhere. I think most families and and the legislature is no different, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have seen a shift, I think, in my interactions, especially in the Senate, with folks acknowledging that it it takes more than just putting people in jail to get them well. It takes, you know, more than just punitive actions and penalties to actually make a difference in people's lives. We can't just say, just lock them up and just say no anymore. And, and I don't think it's just folks like myself that work in harm reduction who are saying that. I think it's it's broad. I, I've heard it from the DEA. I've heard it from the attorney general's office. So it is shifting. Now, that being said, there are still morality, I guess, for lack of a better term, questions that come into people's minds about people who use substances. And that's challenging for me. And that's something I'm going to keep working on. But it's better. It's so much better. Yeah. I noticed when I asked you how Utah's managed to reverse its course on opioid deaths, you didn't mention criminalization. Right. And that has not been a piece of it. Truly, it has not been. We have not, you know, increased fines or increased what sort of minimums or what sort of sentences people are supposed to get related to crimes. We've had syringe exchange programs now where folks can get 
working on not getting infectious disease transmission like hepatitis C and HIV. We've legalized fentanyl test strips in this last year. We've got diversion centers that are set up where folks, if they have a nonviolent crime related to their substance use, are picked up, for lack of a better term. If they're picked up, they can be diverted towards treatment, diverted towards actually getting some help for the underlying cause as opposed to just being thrown in jail. These receiving centers, they call them, are springing up across the state. The first one that I worked with was the Davis County Receiving Center, and it has been truly game-changing in what they have been able to do, not only for the folks who are diverted from the actual incarceration space, but for the community itself to say, yeah, you know what, it doesn't make any sense that if someone stole a bike out of my garage and they get caught and they get locked up for 28 days or whatever, and they go back and they haven't had much opportunity to get on a better path that anything's going to change. Folks are realizing that. And so I've really been proud of the state for that. Whenever posture comes up in conversation, we all do that thing where we immediately sit upright and pull our shoulders back. Did you do it just now? I did a movement session with Chandler at Embodied Patients, and after a few gentle corrections, I was surprised to find sitting up straight is incredibly easy. Chandler's practice combines over a decade of study in yoga, Pilates, and the Alexander Technique. So why should you invest in your posture? Let's start with the link between better posture and better breathing. Whether you're returning to activity from an injury, looking to manage pain, or just have the sense things could be a little easier, Chandler will teach you to create sustainable movement habits so that you can enjoy the things you love for longer. Maybe that's running marathons. Maybe it's walking the dog. Visit embodiedpatients.com to book a session with Chandler and give yourself the gift of your own attention. I mean, given that it was just, what, a year ago that you were on this show talking about our numbers in terms of opioid deaths and the opioid crisis, it does feel crazy to be here now saying it feels like we have a handle on this crisis in this state. Not that you should be in a constant state of worry, (laughs) but as a lawmaker and a medical doctor, what's raising alarm bells for you now? What do you have your eye on? There's a couple of things, and and my hope first and foremost, is that as I look at all of the graphics that are, are done nationally, whether it's, it's CDC data, most recently looked at by the Kaiser Family Foundation, and I see the nation starting to have and continuing to have this big escalation coming out of the pandemic years. And I don't see that for Utah. I see Utah, we had a little bit of a bump up and then it's you know kind of on its way back down. What I've hoped for all along is that we would hit a peak. Right. That happens with all sorts of things. We hit a peak with gun deaths, with HIV AIDS related deaths, with car crash deaths. That's kind of what I hope for is that we would find that space so that it is not continuing to escalate. So when I see the U.S. continuing to escalate and Utah not, my first hope is, oh, please don't let it just be that we're lagging behind on the curve because Hmm. Utah is a little late to certain parties, right? With <laughs> No mm-hmm. pun intended there, but we, mm-hmm. we do lapse and lag behind a little bit. So my first hope is that, that that's not just going to be a, a later surfacing thing here. I also have some decent concerns about the hype and hysteria that has been centered around fentanyl. And fentanyl is a very 
potent substance. It's a very fast-acting substance, and we know it's here in Utah. Pretty much any pill that you get outside of a pharmacy space, you can assume that it has fentanyl in it, even if it's not billed as fentanyl, right? So I've heard folks say, oh, uh, yeah, but I don't use opioids. I know, but if you're buying a pill and you haven't acquired it from a pharmacy, even if you think it's Adderall, even if you think it's gabapentin, even if you think it's something like Ativan or Valium, you don't know. Hmm. And it's so strong and fast acting that that's where the risk comes for people. It's here. And I'm worried that by educating folks and doing the right information pieces, that there are factions that will take that and hype it up to be, uh, again, back to that criminalization thing that you and I were talking about. There's a a federal attempt right now with the HALT Fentanyl Act to take the fentanyl-driven fear, turn that into increased prosecution, increased penalties, mandatory minimums, poor decisions, right? Like the stuff that we saw in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, it sounds like war on drugs language. It is. And you're spot on. That's exactly what it is. And it is not the right thing to do. It's also not the smart thing to do if we can learn anything from the lessons of the past. We did not win, quote, the war on crack, right, in the 80s and 90s by increasing penalties related to crack. And there's a whole lot of reasons behind that. And and they're probably, I don't know, different reasons for fentanyl, but it's nonetheless the same kind of hammer attempting to pull it out of the toolbox and and help change something. So I'm worried about that. And I'm worried about folks not thinking it through completely. I've heard things before, like, well, if you don't vote for these anti-fentanyl policies, you want fentanyl to be here. No, that's not it at all. They're not to be increasing harms and a worsening scenario brought on by policy and laws is is my view on that. And I was really pleased to see the Senate here in Utah this last year. There was another attempt at bringing a drug-induced homicide bill through. This was the third time that it's come up in the last five or so years. And the Senate didn't let it off the Senate floor. There was an acknowledgement that it was too much. And that for me was a moment of me saying, okay, they're getting it. They're starting to understand that you can't Mm. just swing harder and and hope that it's going to change the outcome. A bit of a breaking of the cycle. Right. And also hopefully a willingness to listen to reason instead of that thing that we're seeing all over in society right now, which is the the fear-mongering and the driving of of panic that leads people to make not only the wrong conclusions, but to do then the next step, which is to institute policy, which are harmful. And we've seen that, you know, I think in a lot of spaces. Mm -hmm. Final concern for me would probably be that, you know, There's always a substance. There's always something on the horizon. Um, Utah, actually, for example, methamphetamine, we're losing more folks to methamphetamine right now than we are to opioids. And unfortunately, Mm. methamphetamine doesn't have an antidote like naloxone. It's not the same strategies to try to combat that. But just because we're winning or improving in the space of opioids, I don't want us to ever feel like, oh, that must mean this doesn't exist anymore. Um, and there's also, you know, fentanyl came out of heroin, out of, you know, from these spaces. There's, there's a new substance or a newer substance in Utah called xylazine, which is a tranquilizer. So there will be future ones down the line. And that's, that's what keeps me 
looking to the future, hoping that we have the right tools in place to help people because we can never just take on one substance and think we're going to eradicate it and eradicate the problem. It's about giving people tools and setting up systems to help folks. I mean, as a layman, when I think about the work that's been done to reduce the stigma around opioids, boy, you really haven't seen a reduced stigma around meth. It's true. And there hasn't been um, as concerted of an effort, I I suppose. And, And granted, there was this desperation that came out of the extreme numbers that were resulting from opioids. But it's kind of like, you know, forgetting alcohol as well. You know, I, there is many folks lost annually to alcohol-related conditions and situations as there are to opioids. And for me, that doesn't mean we judge it as a, a morality space. It means, okay, there's some information that needs to be out there for folks about their health, about, you know, warning signs, about what it means to have a healthy relationship with a substance. Um, and we focused a lot on opioids, but we haven't focused on other substances. And and I think folks deserve that same and similar attention. Yeah, it does feel like naloxone and having the ability to reverse an opioid overdose has been the blockbuster sort of game changer in this crisis. And on the note of education, because it does feel like that is sort of the next step in all of this, I was wondering if you could, before we go, just tell us, like for anyone who's listening who hasn't been given a naloxone kit before or maybe wants to get their hands on one, how do you identify an opioid overdose and administer naloxone? Like, could you do a, like a short audio training for us? So what I tell folks is five things that they can look for when they're trying to identify if someone has overdosed on an opioid. Five things are they're not talking and they're not moving. So this is somebody who's out cold. This isn't someone who's, you know, like slurring or altered. That person may be on their way to overdose, so you got to watch them carefully. But this person's out. So it's the, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, wake up, wake up. Can't get them to wake up sort of scenario. Then I want people to look at their eyes, their lips, and their lungs. So kind of just march down from the forehead down. Your eyes, your lips, and your lungs. Your eyes get this tiny little pinpoint pupil, like a fleck of pepper. If you have someone down and you're like, buddy, are you all right? Hey, hey, buddy. Open, you know, try to open up their eyes. Just plop the eyelid open. If you see a little fleck of pepper pupil there that's not going up and down, right? It's like, it's truly a little black dot. That's an opioid. You're done. That's all you need to know, and that's an opioid. Nothing else in medicine causes that. But sometimes you can't see. It's a dark eye or a dark scenario, dark room. Look at their lips as well. So when someone overdoses on an opioid, they're not breathing, or their breathing's really slowed. So when you don't have enough breathing, you don't have enough oxygen. That means you get bluish or grayish tints on your lips, especially folks with darker skin tones or more melanin in their skin tone. Kind of pull the lip down and look along the gum line and the inside of the lips, and it'll be grayish or purplish, not that you know, pink, red. And then finally the lungs. So eyes, lips, lungs. Lungs, they're not breathing at all. They're barely breathing or they're doing this awful like kind of snoring. I I demonstrated knowing full well that it's not attractive, but it's kind of this Mm. really fish out of water sounding. So those are the things you're looking for. Does it have to be 100% of them? No. Say someone has lipstick on. No. What you're looking for all of those. Any of them can be a clue to you. You know what? I should give naloxone. And if it happens that you're wrong, you're not going to hurt that person. Call 911, get them on the way, look for those signs. If you think, hey, this could be it, give them the naloxone. You're not going to hurt them if it turns out that's not what it was. If you know someone who's, you know, in recovery or struggling, either side of it, you should have naloxone. They learn all of this. They learn how to 
to use it, when to use it, and they also get kits mailed to them. So our website, utahnaloxone.org, has our virtual trainings. Folks can sign up and watch from their living room, watch from their, you know, their car, watch from their lunch hour at work. They can gather their whole family if they want. It's all confidential slash anonymous. I don't report it anywhere. I don't keep a list of who the people are that get kits. For me, it's just an opportunity for people to learn about how they might be the one to save a life and also maybe reframe the way they think about this space a bit. And if you do have someone and you want to administer naloxone to them and you've got a kit, it is a needle. Yep. And just looking for meaty part, right? Exactly. Big muscle. So if you're someone who's watched Pulp Fiction, please don't ever stab anyone in the heart in life. Yeah. You want to go for a big meaty muscle. So kind of the outer shoulder, the outer thigh or the butt muscle, you know, kind of in the glutes. Uh, you can go right through clothes. Um, you don't have to worry about people say to me, oh, but what about the little alcohol swab? You don't have to do that. Each kit comes with two doses. And we tell folks, hey, if, if they wake up or they're with you in three minutes, you're done. If they're not in three minutes, you give them another dose. I, I send folks two kits, so they have four doses just in case somebody screws up a dose or it's taking a little longer for them to come to or they live in a more rural area where EMS is further away. Um, there's no danger to having it. And it's truly, it's the same dose for a kid, for a baby, for a, a German shepherd, for a 16-year-old, for a 60-year-old. It's the same dose for everyone. And so that's part of why it's been, I think, easy for folks to get on board is, is it's pretty simple. It, it really is yeah. pretty simple and pretty basic. And knowing that you can't hurt somebody with it gives people a lot of reassurance. It's really empowering. I also, I remember doing a training with you and you said, this really stuck with me, when they come to... They might feel terrible and they might be pissed, but they're going to be alive. That's exactly the case, especially if they're an opioid dependent person because it sends them into withdrawals. But yeah, they may be pissed and they may be not happy that they're in that moment, but they're going to get happy that they're still alive and you're going to be happy that they're still with you. State Senator and Dr. Jennifer Plum, thank you so much for your time and for your just absolutely relentless work on this issue. Well, I tell you what, I, I am so appreciative of the opportunity to talk about it and appreciate it, the fact that you've been there all along saying, this is something folks need to know about because without the voices, people don't know about it. So thank you. If you want to pick up an Aloxone kit for your home or workplace or backpack, good idea. Visit utahnaloxone.com to order a kit, browse their training calendar, or book a training for a group. If you own a business and haven't trained your staff, this could be a great opportunity to get a kit behind the counter. There is nothing cooler than community care. That is all for us today here on CityCast Salt Lake. Thank you for listening. We will be back tomorrow morning with more from around this city. Bye.